Our text this morning is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. And that is our message, saved by the righteousness of God. Tan said something during her prayer that was um, amazing to me. Uh, she said, everyone has their own idea of righteousness. That's, that idea is so central to this message. I, I really feel like the Lord is doing his, his wonderful work of weaving together ideas and thoughts that we didn't plan on. Um, because that will be such a principal question. Everyone having their own idea of righteousness. Who, whose do we settle on? The message is called Saved by the Righteousness of God. And my text is uh, going to kind of land in, in um, where there's a bridge between two big themes. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Um, and then, Luke, can I pick on you and ask you to pray for the message and just come on up here, unmute, and pray for the message? Okay. Romans 1, 16 through 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Ed, we should have a slide for this if you move forward. There it is. I'm going to start that again so you guys can read along. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written but the one who is righteous by faith shall live. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Luke, would you pray for us? Father, uh, we just come to you and thank you for the privilege of getting to come and worship you to hear your word. Lord, I just pray right now that you give us focus, open up our ears, our hearts to whatever message you have to say to us, Lord. There are so many things that can distract us from this message, Lord. So I just pray that whatever it is that might prevent us from hearing what you have to say to each of us individually this morning, Lord, you give us focus and you find the hands of the enemy that might want to distract us from what you have to say. God, I pray for Albert. I pray that it's not his words that we hear, but your word, God, through Albert today. I pray that you bless this message with joy and grace and wisdom. And we just pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. I have three main headings this morning. Um, Ed, we can come back to that verse again and again. And if, and if you just stayed there the whole morning, that would be fine too. Um, but my first heading, and I want to kind of organize it by headings. Um, so just, you know, psychically keep this in your mind. Our first heading is 
our predicament, our predicament, our predicament. In Leviticus 10, there is the tragic story of two sons, Aaron's sons. Aaron was Moses' brother. He had been with Moses from the burning bush through the parting of the Red Sea and in through the Exodus wanderings. Aaron was very useful to Moses. He wasn't just his brother. He was his teammate, his colleague, and his partner. And he had two sons, Aaron did, Nadab and Abihu. He had other sons, but these are the two that we're going to talk about this morning. As God established the nation of Israel and gave them instructions about how to interact with him in the temple where God's holy presence dwelt. And at that time, the temple was in a form we call the tabernacle. It was more like a tent that moved around, but it was still according to the principles of design and function, a temple for God. And God called Aaron to be a priest in his temple or tabernacle to serve there with his sons who would also be priests. And God gave Israel and Aaron and his sons very clear and very specific rules on how and when to approach the Lord in his presence in the tabernacle. And these instructions were very particular because they were in keeping with God's honor and his holiness. They said something very, very important about God, that he was holy, sacred, set apart, not common. But one night, Nadab and Abihu, these two sons of Aaron, possibly intoxicated. We don't know for certain, but in the larger context of what's said later, it does appear that maybe they were intoxicated. But they decided to just go in to the tabernacle and offer fire, burning an incense to the Lord. They decided to go in in a way that seemed right to them. On their time, in their manner, they decided how they would engage God And here's what Leviticus says. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on the fire and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. What goes on in your mind when you hear a story like that? Moses' nephews, new to the job, brand new rules, not perfect, not sinless, but not going in explicitly in text to profane God, trying to make an offering to him. Do you think, man, that's rough. They just made a mistake. They're young. They're new. This is all a brand new thing to them. Why would God do such a thing? Well, here is God's response. Then Moses said to Aaron, this 
is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. Our text today is about salvation. The salvation that comes through faith in the gospel. But we cannot contemplate the salvation rightly if we do not contemplate our need for salvation rightly. We need to think about the reason for salvation. Why we need saving. And we don't like to think about that. We don't enjoy thinking about that because the truth is that truly apart from Christ, all people and we would be too apart from Christ are in such deep trouble with God. It is almost impossible to process apart from staying very close to God's word. And I bring up Nadab and Abihu because in some respects, we are all as a human race stumbling around all day in the presence of the Lord, walking in ways not too dissimilar from them, presuming upon him in our indifference to him, we presume on him. In our lack of love for him, we presume on him. In our lack of devotion to him, in our lack of putting him first in our lives, we presume on him. In our anger at others, in our laziness, in our immorality, in our selfishness, in our unbelief, in our resentments, in our greeds, we walk in unsober all day in his presence unaware of his presence and what his presence means. But instead of fire coming out from the presence of the Lord, we get another day. We get another chance. We get another dose day after day, moment by moment of God's patience and God's mercy. And in light of what the gospel tells us about our predicament, which we'll see more in a moment, and we'll see through all of chapter one and all of chapter two and most of chapter three to come, rather than asking, why would God do such a thing to Nadab and Abihu? We should, if we were thinking rightly, we should ask, why do I get another day? Why do I get another dose of mercy? Why do I get more patience and more, more waiting, more gentleness? more mercy. Because after telling us about the gospel saving power in verses 16 and 17, Paul says this about all people. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And Paul says this right after the gospel, right after he tells about the good news. He says this because it's not possible to really understand 
Certainly, it's not possible to treasure, but it's not even possible to really understand the gospel in verses 16 and 17 and its saving character unless we understand at least foundationally what he means in verse 18 when he says the wrath of God is being revealed or manifest or actively coming into existence right now against all people because of how they suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. See, we don't primarily need saving from bad relationships. We don't primarily need saving from terrible government or from war or from poverty or from racism or from disease or from death, which are all horrible. And we're right for wanting saving from those things, but we don't need primarily foundationally need saving from those things. We don't even need primarily. We don't even need saving from our own sinful hearts. This is what the Bible says, though that all that is true. And in salvation, God progressively and eventually saves us from all those things. Praise God. What Paul says in verse 18 is that behind all that, what's foundational to all that is that you and I need saving from God. God loves you. You came in this morning being loved by God. But were it not for Jesus Christ, and if you do not have Jesus Christ, you need saving from God, from his wrath. And so do I. God's wrath is our predicament. And that predicament is what necessitates the gospel. Speaking to all of mankind with God, with regard to God, universally in the next chapter, Paul says to all people, because of your hard and impenitent heart, and he's speaking of people without Christ, he's speaking of a pre-converted people, though we all battle with these things. But he says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men and women by Christ Jesus. He will render to each one according to his works. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, Paul says this, these are words from the Bible. He says, there will be wrath and fury. I'm not trying to preach a fire and brimstone sermon today. But I, I just want you to know like that, I don't want to be like a pastor because it, it can happen. Who loves talking about God's wrath and fire and judgment and just enjoys grinding into that with his people. I, I, I want to be faithful and preach the Bible. And here's what the Bible says, that God's wrath is upon humankind. And we're going to see in chapter one, it's incredible as, as we go into it. There's a way in which God's wrath is already at work in the world. 
in sobering ways that we experience every day. I'm not talking about hurricanes and volcanoes. It's, it's more sobering and alarming even. And if I could put it this way, in God's working things out, it's more ingenious than that. So we're going to see that God's wrath is already at work in the hardness that goes on against him in the world. But, but there's also a day Paul talks about coming when the course of the entire human race will be interrupted by God. Jesus says it's going to be a day. It'll be just like in the days of Noah. People were going about their business, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Nobody gave it a second thought when suddenly the flood came upon them all and swept them away. Jesus says the day of God's judgment is going to be like that day. Most people will not be looking for it, believing in it. Most people will be not thinking about it or mocking the idea of it as we are progressively in our culture. But Jesus says it's coming. There's a day when the fire of the Lord is going to come out from the presence of the Lord. And instead of the continual flow of mercy and patience, he's giving to a large degree, he gives the world. The world will receive what Nadab and Abihu did for presuming on God again and again and again and again. And the word of God unapologetically tells us that we need saving from that day. That is what Paul is talking about among all things. He's talking primarily about that day. When he talks about the gospel and, what, and the salvation that saves us in the gospel, he's talking about the ultimate salvation that comes from the wrath of God, which is primarily, which is, reaches its apex on that day. So you, you cannot think very far and long into the gospel without recognizing the gospel is to save us from God's wrath coming on that day. God is serious about himself and he, he calls mankind to be serious about him. God is serious when he commands us to have no other gods but him. And we need saving from his just wrath because we disobey this command. When we make idols of money or power or sex, and we can make idols of them because we have so much money, and we can make idols of them because we don't have enough money, according to what we want. We make idols of power because we have a lot of power or because we have little power. We make idols of sex and romance because we have so much of it, enjoyed so much, or because we have so little. When we put those things in front of God as our hope instead of him, God is not indifferent. He has wrath because he says that we're supposed to put our hope in him above all things. And he, he's angry about that because it's wrong and it's wicked for us to do that. God is serious when he commands us not to take his name in vain and to honor him in how we speak of him to others and to not be ashamed of who he is to others. He's serious about that and we need saving from his wrath because he's serious about that. He wasn't joking. 
He's serious when he says that he deserves to be loved above all things in our lives and trusted above all our troubles. He's serious when he tells us not to lie with our lips or murder with our hatred or seek out refuges and and addictions to the pleasures of this world, whether they're legal or illegal, that render us useless to him or others. Addictions to laziness, addictions to porn, addictions that will get us arrested, addictions that will get us a promotion. He's serious about these things. He's serious when he tells us that to purposely lust after someone sexually. Listen, he's serious when he tells us to purposely lust after someone sexually who is not our husband or wife, whether that's someone in person or whether it's on our phone that that activity pursued is worthy of hell. He's not kidding. He's serious when he tells us that he abhors the lying tongue and the proud heart and the person who divides people one from another with slander and bitterness. He's serious when he commands us to share our wealth and to share what we have with the poor and the needy in our church, and to also care for our church corporately with our wealth, with our time, with our treasure. He, he's commanded us these things. He's made it clear in his word over and over and over again. And he's serious about, I mean, I could go on and on, but my point is God takes himself seriously. Whether we take him seriously or not, he takes himself seriously, very seriously. And he cares about how we treat him more than anything else. Because he is love, he is justice. And what we do with love and what we do with justice is more important than anything else. And it's, it's just so easy for me and for you not to take him seriously. This is what Paul says mankind does. He says, we suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. We don't do it simply because we were never told. We don't do it because we have a, I'm not being, I'm not being glib here, because we have a mental disability and we, we can't think about him or we forget about him because we're so forgetful because our brains are older. No, he says we do it in unrighteousness. In other words, we do it on purpose so that we can live how we want to live and excuse ourselves. Denying the truth about God that deep down every person knows, Paul will tell us, and we'll go into this other weeks in this chapter, but it, it is how senators can vote for abortion up to the day of birth in this country with proud hearts and say they're standing up for human rights. And it's how a conservative Republican Klansman, you know, not that any, I'm not trying to bash Republicans because they're not, most of them are not Klansmen, but it's how the Klan could sing a hymn on Sunday morning to the Lord and then murder those who bear God's image that night. It's how religious leaders can manipulate worshipers, push abuse under the carpet, or tell people not to go to the authorities so that they can protect their ministries. And I'm not saying who did that. I'm not getting involved. I'm just saying that happens in our world. And they pretend God is something else 
so they can be comfortable with their choice or they pretend he isn't real at all. But listen, it's what you and I do by being lazy at work and just, it's okay. You know, just, it's okay. It's, it's been tough. Being judgmental towards brothers and sisters when we ourselves are always receiving mercy. Being jealous or bitter because of what they have. Even though God is giving us breath and clothing and life and food this very moment. Wallowing in indifference to God by just ignoring him. When he says, you are supposed to love me above all things. And I know I harp in this, but it's, it's probably good to harp. But if I compare the amount of time and investment and emotion you put into X, Y, and Z, your screen, your phone, your sports, your game, your relationship, it, no one would think that you love me <laughs> above that stuff. And what we do is we start to reshape in our minds the truth about who God really is. We make him just the God of mercy, always, always, always. We make him the God of niceness. We make him the God that we need him to be, to be comfortable in these places. As a race of people, we think that because fire has not come out from the presence of the Lord when we open up that screen and look at that image that we shouldn't be looking at. We think that because fire has not come out from the presence of the Lord like it did for Nadab and Abihu, that we can kind of keep going our own way and presume on another hour, another day of life But listen, there's a reason why fire hasn't come out from the presence of the Lord when you look at that image on your phone. And it's not because the Lord is not real. Paul says it in 2.4, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His patience, his mercy, his withholding the fire that he didn't withhold from Nadab and Abihu has a purpose. It's to give you time to repent and to stop and to turn to him for mercy and forgiveness and strength. But because he's merciful and patient, we can begin to think that, well, it's fine if we just keep going and harden ourselves further and further and we become further and further entrapped by our sin. R.C. Sproul is a theologian. He's gone to be with the Lord. He was a professor and he has this really insightful anecdote about his days as a college professor that, that illustrates how we slowly deny the truth about God to suit our lives. At one year, he had a class of about 200 students it was a typical semester, fall semester. He has 200 students. They have three exams over the semester. That's how, you know, it goes. You just read these books and then take these three take-home exams. Sorry if I'm causing nausea and some of you who've just been through all that. Thank God most of you are over the hump of that because it's June. But um, it's in the rearview mirror, Maddie. 
at least this semester. So, so here's what he does. He says the first day of the class, he brings them all in and he says, listen, you have three, gives them the syllabus. The professor always go through the syllabus. Here's what you can expect. He says, you have three exams, take home exams that are all due. And if you don't bring them to me the day they're due at 2 p.m., put them on my desk, you get an F. No exceptions, no exceptions, no exceptions. You get an F. 200 students. The first exam, about 25 students didn't bring their exam in. And they all just said, oh, Professor Sproul, please. You don't understand. It was so hard. I'm still getting used to this campus or I was sick or it was just really, I got lost. I don't know the campus yet. Please, please, please give us another chance. And he said, okay. Get it to me on Monday at 2 p.m. But next time, on the October exam, you better get it in here or it's an F. So October comes, the second exam. This time, 50 students. Don't bring the exam in. Oh, please, Professor Sproul. I mean, he does it on his, you know, I'm just kind of mimicking him, but th that's what he says. He's like, they're, they're just begging. Please don't give us another chance. It was homecoming weekend. It's homecoming weekend. Football games, families, it's so hard. Home, please. And he said, okay, okay. And they sang a song to him. No one's like you, Professor Sproul. Who is like you, Professor Sproul? So kind and jolly. Thank you for whatever. But November, the final exam. Get it in. Get it in on time. November comes. A hundred students out of over 200, 100 are late. And this is according to him. Please give us another chance. And he said, I am sorry. I can't keep doing this. I've been honest. I've been le I can't. F. Okay. I got to give you an F. Hopefully your other exams will get you over the 66% mark. How could you do this to us? And then he says this phrase came out of it, their mouths. That is not fair. That is not fair. And so he says, what? That's not fair. Okay, you want me to be fair? Dave Miller, you want me to be fair? Let's go back to September. <laughs> F. Let's go back to October, F. And of course, December or November, F. That's fair. And Sproul ends and he says, don't ever ask God to be fair to you. It, it'll be the worst thing that could happen to you if you ask God to be fair to you. That's not fair.
See, as Dr. Sproul showed his forbearance and patience to his students, they took that forbearance and patience, and instead of letting it cause them to work harder and do a better job with their time and steward their, their management of study, they started to morph who he was in their minds to make them comfortable with how they wanted to live. He was no, they couldn't hear him anymore saying an F, an F, an F, get it to me at two. They couldn't hear that anymore. Not functionally. He was now the comfortable, nice teddy bear professor who would just continue, continue extending grace upon grace and upon grace. And then they began to not just deny him, but listen, this is so perceptive because it's what humanity does. They started to deny reality itself. They said, that's not fair. They started to twist reality itself. They had their own idea of what righteousness was suddenly. They suppressed what real righteousness was and they changed it into their idea. He became who they wanted him to be. And his righteousness became what they wanted it to be, which was actually unrighteousness, but an unrighteousness that allowed them to be comfortable living like how they wanted. And so God says to the world, don't presume on my patience with you by denying who I am. I am the God of justice and I will see that justice is done because that is who I am. I am righteous. I am justice. But there is a huge problem for all of us because this is what God, the God who made you, who made you and sustains you this very moment, who holds every molecule of your being together. I've said it before. We could all spend two hours just on the floor, on our faces, just crying out in awe that we exist, <laughs> that, that we are invisible spiritual beings <laughs> inside a material body that I can just think and my hand moves. And I get, what in the world is going on? Like, what do we think that we know the first thing about reality? Does anyone know how I can do this? How, why I exist and live and can think thoughts that <laughs> manipulate material matter? I have no idea at a fundamental level. I mean, I could tell you about synapses and dendrites and bone structures and muscles, but I have no idea how this invisible thought thinks, hand move, and it moves, and neither do you. How are we held together, molecule by molecule by molecule? Why don't we just, why aren't we just torn apart in the fabric of space and time? And, you know, it's just... Every second is a miracle. God says that in him we move and have our very being in him. He holds all things together by the word of his power. We owe him everything. Every moment, we owe him everything. And he says, I deserve all glory and honor and thanks and praise and a life of worship because you owe me everything and I'm loving and I'm good and I'm holy. But he also says, none of you have walked right with me. None of you have.
He says that he is the righteous judge of the universe and that all of mankind is under the penalty of physical and spiritual death for our sins against his holy name, that we are all worthy of eternal judgment and destruction. And you might be sitting in this room right now and you're struggling with this and I struggle with this, but we might protest, we might move our struggle into protest, right? It's so, I think it's reasonable to struggle, but we move into protest in our hearts. That's not just, that's not fair. But we should remember, as Ton hinted at, Everyone has their own idea of righteousness. We might remember that we don't really know what just is. We don't really know what righteousness is. We're members of a human race that's been able, by the millions and millions and millions over centuries, that's been able to bless slavery. I mean, professing Christians, stealing people from Africa, working with African leaders, by the way, to steal people from Africa, It wasn't just white people that made slavery happen. It was black people that sold their own people. And the the white people were very happy to take them and brutalize them and tear them apart family by family for centuries and call it fine and be Christians and go to church and and teach them the gospel. Hey, here's the gospel, slave. We were fine with that. Millions of people with their best intentions were completely blind to that and called that righteous. And of course, as an evangelical conservative Christian church, we know the other tropes, right? Millions and millions of people to this day are able to bless abortion and celebrate it and call it a human right. Just like millions of Germans were able to bless the persecution of the Jews and many, many officers in the SS and German officers knew what they were doing. And this is, we don't, and this has been done race upon race, nation upon nation for millennia. And you're, I, I really think you're fooling yourself if you think you're incapable of that kind of blindness. And those big pictures, the Holocaust, abortion, slavery, they happen on tiny levels at home, with our spouse, with our kids, the way we're rude to each other, cruel to each other, snap at each other, bitter with each other. They happen with God. And God says, I am serious. I'm going to punish it all. I'm going to punish it all because I'm just. I'm righteous. And, And I don't owe you anything. I never did. I never could. You can do a million things for God. You'll never put him in your debt. You were supposed to do those things anyway. You could love God with all your heart. It's only your duty. You should be doing that. You don't deserve a special prize for that. Adam was in debt to God the moment he was alive. He wasn't sinning by being in debt to God. That's the only way we can live with God is a a transaction of grace. One direction from him to us. That's how we're meant to live. But we're indebted to him for that always. To love him. to, To honor him. And not only... Do we not live in the, in the good kind of debt we owe him, which is just to live under grace, but we transgress against him. We sin against him. And now we owe him. Now he's, he's mad. He's mad. He's wrathful. He's angry. 
And so this is why, after saying, this is why when Paul explains the gospel, this is why he explains the gospel this way. Here's why Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Listen, listen closely. Here's what he says about the gospel. He says, for in the gospel, what is revealed? The love of God? The mercy of God? No, here's how the gospel saves. He says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God. Do you see that? In verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, which we'll we'll spend more time on another time. It basically means from beginning to end, it's by faith. But what is in the gospel that makes it able to save? The righteousness of God is revealed. Now, wouldn't you think it should say the gospel saves us because in the gospel, God reveals the love of God. Like that would make more sense, right? Or like I said, the mercy of God. And of course that's true. The gospel reveals God's love and mercy. Paul will say in chapter five, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The most famous Bible verse is John three sixteen. maybe. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So yes, the gospel shows his love, absolutely, 100%. But in this context of the problem of God's wrath because of our unrighteousness, Paul doesn't talk about love or mercy as the reason why the gospel saves. He says it saves because it shows, makes manifest, makes active God's righteousness. So we need to ask why in the world would he say that? Because doesn't the righteousness of God catalyze his wrath? Like, isn't that why we're in trouble? Because he's just? <clears throat> well, if that's what it meant, it would, and it should. It would be a dreadful thing. The righteousness of God, meaning he's a just God and he punishes sin. Full stop, that's all the information we get. That would be a terrible thing. And that's the way the phrase was interpreted for centuries, for some time in the Catholic church. In the midst of that, that, that understanding in the 1500s, there's a German monk <clears throat> Named Martin Luther. Yeah, this gets into the Catholic question. I'm sorry, now I'm like, <laughs> Maddie wrote me some questions that were really great, just asking questions about history and stuff like that. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Please delete this. <laughs> um, this German monk named Martin Luther thought, according to the custom of his time, that the righteousness of God referred to the abstract property of God's righteous heart and the righteous judgment he brings upon sinners. And he wrote this, he said, I had been captivated with an extraordinary ardor. It means great desire to understand Paul and the epistle of Romans. So in his heart, God is wooing him saying, Luther, (laughs) read Romans, read Romans. He's hearing it at lunch. He's hearing it at breakfast. And he pursues this book called Romans. But he gets to this single word in chapter one and verse 17, the righteousness of God. And he says, it stands in my way. I hate that word, righteousness of God which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes the unrighteous sinner. See, Luther knew deep down in his heart that he was a sinner and he could not stop sinning and he despaired. And the more he thought about the righteousness of God, the more he hated God. He says, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners secretly, if not blasphemously, 
certainly murmuring greatly. I was angry with God. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated day and night, I paid attention to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, he, the one who is righteous by faith. Thank you. The one who is righteous by faith shall live. What Luther came to see by God's grace is what Paul will explain in great detail as we journey through this book. That the righteousness of God in verse 17 does not refer to God's righteous judgment full stop. Although it it does involve that idea because of who gets judged. But it refers to the gift of righteousness that comes from the righteous God who in his righteousness punishes his son for us. Indeed, the the Greek allows for a translation that NIV used to have, which I think might be a little better. It calls it the righteousness from God. That little preposition makes a big difference. The righteousness from God. The reason why Paul talks about the righteousness from God is that what is clear in his mind is that the only thing that can save sinners before a righteous God who will always be righteous is if he gives them a righteousness they don't have. That's why he says in the context of God's wrath at our unrighteousness that the gospel saves by revealing the righteousness from him. He gives people a righteousness they don't have and could never have. See, he cannot stop being righteous ever. And we cannot change the fact that we have all sinned ever. We can try to stop sinning in the future, but in this life we will fail at that, but we can definitely not do anything in ourselves about the fact that we have sinned Before this moment. And so in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God finds a way out. He can continue to be the righteous God. And he can bestow upon us. A righteous verdict. Not because we are righteous in ourselves. But by virtue of the death of Christ for our sins. In his righteousness, he gets to punish sin. All his anger at our sin isn't manifest upon us anymore. It's manifested upon himself in the person of his son. He doesn't have to compromise his righteousness or stop being the God who punishes sin. And then he gives us a verdict of righteous. Because Jesus receives our sin, he takes them from us, is punished for them. In this way, God will be just by not punishing us. You understand double indemnity and court cases? You can't be tried for the same crime. 
You can't send someone to prison. They serve 15 years and then send them back to prison for the same crime for another 15 years. God won't be just. He won't be righteous if he punishes people for whom Christ has died for their sins. He would be unjust. So God, simply by our faith and simply trusting God for it, bestows upon you and I, when we put our trust in this gift of his son, which is the only way out, he says over your life, not guilty. Not guilty. Righteous. 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 And this gift of righteousness, which begins with the forgiveness of our sins and this verdict of righteous proclaimed over you, it ushers in with it great blessings, a new heart, a new spirit, his spirit, so that you can actually begin to live righteously. But that's not your righteousness. Your righteousness always comes from him. It's the righteous gift he gives you when he says over your life, because of Jesus, not guilty, righteous in my son, righteous in my son, righteous because of my son. I will not count your trespasses against you. I've punished my son for them and I see your record as clear. I see your debt as paid and I pronounce you righteous. When Luther realized that this is what God meant, he was never the same and nor soon would the world ever be the same. He said, then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by the gift of faith from God. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and I had entered into paradise through open gates. It was paradise for Luther to realize that God gave him a righteousness that he couldn't produce on his own. A righteous standing, a righteous verdict ever always before God's court because of the horrible death of his son. John Piper puts it this way. God demands righteousness and we don't have it. So the only hope for us is that God himself would give the righteousness that he demands. That would be good news. That would be gospel. And that is what he does This is how the gospel saves us from the wrath of God. You see in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what is our rescue? What is our hope to escape this wrath when we are ungodly and unrighteous? The answer is that God would intervene and supply us with a righteousness that is not our own, that he would give to us the righteousness that he demands from us. If God would do that, then his wrath would be averted and we could be reconciled to him. That is what, in fact, he did. That is the gospel. This is the way it saves us. We started today with the sobering tragedy of the fiery judgment which came out from the presence of the Lord. Because that day, God decided not to be merciful. He decided 
not to give those young men, at least in that context, I don't know what happened to their souls eternally, but he decided not to overlook their sins and give them a righteousness in that moment that would allow his wrath to be averted. No, he killed them for their sins against him because they took him for granted and presumed against him and broke his laws. Well, century upon century goes by in the history of this little nation, Israel. And about 1,500 years later, near another temple, a kind of spiritual fire of God's judgment comes out from the presence of the Lord. And it consumes the Son of God with infinitely more power and righteous justice against sin. And on that day, Jesus Christ the righteous was punished for all of our sins, for all who put their hope in him, so that you and I can know on this day that we stand before God, not in our sins, but with the verdict that we don't deserve righteous in Christ declared over us as a gift. And he did this because there's another day coming when God's wrath will be fully manifest upon the world in judgment. And on that day, our hope must still be in Jesus Christ as our righteousness. For on that day, all of God's judgment that should belong to us, we will realize it's It's already fallen on our Savior for us. That fire that comes out from the presence of the Lord, which will consume those who refuse to turn to him in repentance, it will, we will look at it. Very possibly in grief for those people. But affirming that God is just and we will see it run around us. And bypass us. And we will know on that day that the only reason it did is is because it fell on his son. It consumed his son. So brothers and sisters, this day, let us hope again. Let's hope again. Not in ourselves that we are righteous in ourselves before a holy God. But that we are righteous in Christ. Let's hope again in the righteous standing that we have before God through Jesus. Let's find fresh joy in the fact that though we still battle with sin and we must battle with sin because it's going to be start battling with us until the day we die, right? To battle, to struggle with sin, not to make peace with it is a sign of being his son and daughter. Don't make peace with it. Battle with it. That's right. That's what you have to do. But while we battle with sin, God has declared us righteous already with the gift of the righteousness of his son. And let's remember the predicament that the world is in around us, the world that we were in. 
It's not a nice day today in Frederick, full stop. I mean, it is a beautiful day, but that's not what's going down. What's going down today behind the beautiful clouds and sun is forbearance. It's patience. It's God waiting for people to turn to him so that they can be saved. That's what's happening in your neighborhood in Frederick. And so let's be humble knowing that we need him still, that we've received a mercy that doesn't make us better than other people. It makes us ambassadors. Let's be humble so that we can be givers of mercy and not our wrath at work in our home with our family. And lastly, if if you're here and you do not know if you have the gift of righteousness, the verdict of righteousness over your life before a holy God, please talk to me. Just grab me and, you know, tell me, can we meet? Can we talk? Can we talk more about this? There is, there's nothing, there's nothing. It doesn't compare. There's nothing more important than receiving by faith the gift of righteousness so you can stand on the day of judgment and know you're not under God's wrath. You're covered by his righteousness.